For relaxing times, make it Suntory time. カット、カット、カット、カット。もっと分かってんなんだ、届けちゃって。これサントリーの響きだよ。高いんだからサントリーの中で一番。もうもっと高級な気持ちで、ね。日常的なお酒じゃないんだよ。くじゅどいつそは
you know, I think about, okay, 1990 was 30 years ago. But I still think of those as fairly recent films from the 90s. I know. I've had a hard time wrapping my arm around the numbers. Whereas if you go 30 years earlier from 1990. It was 1960. It was 1960. And those are like classic movies. I know. And of course, you know, if you were for younger folks, like like the millennial, our, our, our good old pal, the 90s are the old classics. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, uh, I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately as we've been doing those shows, just how, uh, how time moves differently and how we see uh, pop culture or, or culture in general, uh, how we see it changing uh, depending on how old we are. What about you, Carrie? Do you find that same thing or do you look and go, oh, the 90s are old movies to me? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, no, I definitely have that same feeling, but I think there are things that kind of get locked in when you're young. Right. That just like have this different weight. And, you know, I think about, you know, there can be certain types or genres of movies like the road trip movie or the coming of age movie. And I feel like the one that you saw first that made the big impression right. on you is always going to feel like the best one. But that's a different <laughs> that's... movie for everybody. Right. You know, it's not necessarily a better movie. It's just like hit you. It left an impression. I think what you just said makes a lot of sense because when we think of that coming of age film, when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, American Graffiti was on uh, broadcast TV. It was like the big network movie of the night. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> that movie meant a lot to my parents who saw it in the theater and they were right. they had young parents. But when I saw this, I just thought it was the greatest film I ever saw. Yeah. It, to me, it was like, you know, again, I, I hadn't experienced anything like that kind of right. movie. And it was sort of the first of its kind. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of coming of age movies of like the car culture and that time period. So it, it fascinated me. But like what Carrie just said, maybe it's because of the time and place that I saw it. It made a very big impact, but other movies might make a big impact to somebody else. To me, like whatever movie it is in whatever category always feels like the best one, even though arguably better movies of that sort of genre have been made since then. It just doesn't matter because they're not hitting me right. when right. it's time for me to be impacted by them. And I think that's that's a really good point. We see films certain points in, and you know I, I, we've talked about this on the show before but films that we saw when we were younger that didn't work for us and then did later or the reverse um but sometimes you you hit a film just sort of at the perfect time in your life for it and i've had this happen where i've like really emotionally connected with a movie even though it's not that great but because right. of where i am in my life i connect with it and so i kind of love the movie even though i know it's not you know the greatest movie ever Definitely. Carrie, do you have any films like that where when you saw them, they had a big impact, then you saw them years later and it was like, oh, I guess it wasn't that good. Or the reverse where you were too young for it and then later you were, this is an amazing movie. Definitely. This is the exact kind of question that's like really hard for me because <laughs> my memory just doesn't. I, I've listened to, I've been listening to the podcast and you guys both seem to have like encyclopedic memories of exactly when you saw something in what theater and what like we edit uh, we edit very well it makes it aspect <laughs> ratio it was in and whether it was film and i i don't know i just like i can't i i i come away with like much more impressionistic ideas like right. i can remember having that experience over and over where maybe someone 
younger than me was seeing their first like coming of age movie. And I'm like, I've seen this 10 times. I've seen this format so many times. And I know exactly what movie it was for me that hit me like that. But whatever movie I'm watching with this other person isn't doing it because I've already seen it too many times. Like as a kid, it was pretty typical, like Disney, Star Wars, Razor Lock, Lost Ark, E.T., all of those, you know, from when I was a kid. And I used to, I would watch movies with my dad on TV. So like um, all the Peter Sellers, Pink Panther movies. My really dad loved watching. those. Yeah, mine did too. And I I loved them and I love them. Um, not all of them really hold up. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, well. they don't. I mean, <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> they really don't. But <laughs> there's still like the slapstick moments that like, don't have any like horrible racial jokes in them <laughs> you know, that, are just, that are just like him putting the cigar in the drawer and lighting the drawer on fire and leaning on the globe and getting his hands stuck. like those things do hold up really well yes they yeah they no. there's definitely sequences but, and scenes that hold up but but yeah things about women things about anybody of another yeah. race like <laughs> oof. i think that journey has been hard for us as we've gone back sometimes to watch some of these films when we're going to be talking about it and then we are uh, like our imaginations and our memories are destroyed almost by this is the content that was going on <laughs> in these movies right yeah but I was really, really lucky um, when I was a teenager, we moved to Austin, Texas. I had been in Arlington, Virginia mm-hmm. and very suburban. And then, but Austin has like a great, had great movie theaters in the 80s. So right. UT Austin had their student union, which had multiple screens and theaters across campus. There was a great movie theater called the varsity that played old movies and then of course all the you know the mall and stuff so but going to the movies was a huge part of my life as a teenager and the first director i sort of became aware of as a director was alfred hitchcock so i loved him as a teen but i was always also really into indies like spinal tap i saw over and over and over again the big chill i saw probably 17 times as a teenager (laughs) the graduate i saw over and over and over again things like repo man oh Um, repo man i watched so many times (laughs) if i had to go to the movies at least in my youth that i saw the most over and over again would be repo man yeah it was a big one and especially since i sort of thought i was a punk at the time (laughs) (laughs) that movie was kind of like the punk bible if you were into punk you kind of tried Mm -hmm. to emulate that movie a little bit yeah, let's go eat sushi and not pay. Is that what you tried to do? <laughs> oh, God. I don't think you could find sushi in, in Austin in the 80s. <laughs> so when you were in Austin as a teenager, did the uh, university theater play older films? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you were able to see stuff in the theater that probably most people were watching on home video at the time. Anything and everything. Like I, One of my best friends was super into James Dean. So oh. I saw like East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause like a million times, which weren't necessarily, they aren't favorites of mine. Right. But like, I remember seeing Citizen Kane in the theater as a 
teenager actually okay. we can actually get kind of rowdy sometimes <laughs> <laughs> well citizen kane citizen kane does make people rowdy i gotta say it does it's really kind of a, a rabble rousing movie but no i mean the, it's now it sounds kind of hysterical that we were being typical disgruntled teenagers in the movie theater like talking too loudly and shouting comments at citizen kane (laughs) 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 and i remember we this woman like got up in a huff at some point in the movie and came over to us and said you just ruined this movie for me and then stormed out oh wow (laughs) and did you feel bad no we thought it was hysterical (laughs) that's that's like i was kind of a delinquent in high school. I love um, that, that that's enough to ruin Citizen Kane for somebody. <laughs> well, I think we were disrupting enough that maybe she couldn't concentrate. Okay. I don't know. Um, I'm not, I can't say that I'm proud exactly, but I do chuckle. And, and I'm sure that woman, that's what she remembers about Citizen Kane, too. <laughs> she's, on a pod, she's on a podcast right now going, you couldn't believe it. These teenagers ruined Citizen Kane, and it's never been I the same for me. I still don't know what Rosebud means. <laughs> <laughs> right? She's been too traumatized to ever go back. To ever go back. She's never seen the end of the movie. No, never. <laughs> she, just, she, she curls up into the fetal position whenever she thinks about it. <laughs> well, when I, I moved to England at the end of high school, and I finished high school in England, mm-hmm. and you were allowed to smoke in the theater. I was in England in high school. And so I have this really vivid memory of seeing a movie that I would not have really remembered otherwise, of watching Jagged Edge with <laughs> Jeff Bridges and, and Glenn Close. Yes. And just smoking my brains out. <laughs> in this movie in this movie theater because it was very tense even though it was predictable and silly it yeah you know, it was it was it was tense and so i was just like chain smoking and well here's a great thing about having carrie on the program i had asked her when i thought maybe she'd want to come on we like what topic will we discuss and she made a suggestion how about women filmmakers directors uh, movies by women and i thought that would be great because it was something that till and i had talked about yeah through the discovery process from the suggestion to carrie i have now found a film that i felt didn't make my top 10 because i hadn't seen it but now it's cemented as a top five for me for the year because i was just so blown away by it yeah it's amazing And the movie is called Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and it's a French filmmaker named Céline Siama, which we believe is the correct pronunciation. (laughs) But it may be Siama. It may be Siama, but I think it's Siama. But anyways, she has made four feature films. I didn't even know this person existed. I knew about the movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I didn't know much about it. And again, because of Carrie and her suggestion... And she was posting some things she had seen. Criterion Channel was offering uh, Celine's first three movies. And then Hulu has an exclusive on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Annoyingly. Annoyingly, yes. Unless, you know, you have the service, which I happen to have. But you can't even, like, rent the movie on Amazon. It's only available on Hulu. No, they Hulu, made it exclusive. Right? I know. They, yeah. they, they, they cornered the market on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, so in the past week... I was able to watch all four 
of Celine's films. And now I've discovered very late in the game an amazing Yeah, because her talent. first film is 2007, right? Yes. Yeah, So she, and it's, so it's been four films in the last 13 years. So I really want to thank you, Carrie, for introducing me to this uh, filmmaker. But I want to start off by asking you, you know, did you just stumble upon this as you were searching or is there a reason that you kind of went down this particular rabbit hole uh, for seeing Celine Siama's movies? I think I wanted to like go back a little second and just say why I think it's important to think about women directors specifically. I sort of did a little bit of research before uh, coming on and looking into the number of women directors in top grossing films. And there's a report that comes out every year called The Celluloid Ceiling. It's from the Center for the Study of Women in Television Film at San Diego State University. And each year it looks at the past five years. And so the top 100 grossing films, 12% were directed by women. If you look at the top 250, it's 13%. If you look at the top 500, it's 14%. Wow. So it's really, really depressing. Yeah, that's really depressing. Wow. 50% of the population, you know. Is it number like steadily consistent or was there, uh, you know, is that actually a strong number? Well, yeah, that's that's what I was just going to ask if 30 years ago. Over time. Yeah, over time has that changed. They have statistics. I don't have it pulled up right this second, but- this report includes looking back. So I, I recommend, you know, you just Google celluloid ceiling and you'll find it. I think I have that experience as like a woman who loves movies and loves going to movies as I get older, you know, having the sense and the feeling of like, Oh, I'm not seeing sort of what, like my stories or stories about, I mean, you know, obviously stories about women aren't a monolith, but I'm seeing men's stories, basically. Right. You're, you're, not, you're not, just, not seeing the representation of, of your experience. And not just men. It's white, straight, cisgendered men. Um, right. So it's narrowed in all sorts of ways. Of course, like, we're going to have a conversation about some great uh, movies by women, but they don't represent everything out there. I just, I feel like it's really important to consciously choose to see mm-hmm. uh, movies created by women. Because the numbers are so small, if you just take what is presented to you by culture and advertising and distribution and all that sort of stuff, you're going to get 12% to 14%. If you think this is an issue, you have to kind of choose as an individual to say, I want to consume more movies by women because it's not just going to happen. Right. Well, and especially since in that 12% are things like Siama, there's people like her who are not necessarily part of the mainstream. Right. And and so there's a, a, maybe a lot of these directors are working in more independent or foreign films. Uh, and so even though there's 12%, it's not 12% of the movies we see. I didn't know who Celine Siama was. Yeah. And I had heard vaguely the titles uh, Girlhood and Tomboy over the years. I didn't know anything about her first movie, uh, Water Lilies, which actually was renamed uh, for yes. American audience. It's actually called The Birth of the Octopuses. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. There's an interview with her on Criterion. She talked about what the genesis of that title was, and it's really talking about you know that coming of age and girls and 
the lot of emotions and feelings and exploration. And she you know, had an analogy to octopuses uh, discovering their abilities and things. Uh, so I thought that was very fascinating. But I didn't know about this movie. Once you had posted to me that you know you were watching that, I just read the description on Criterion. I said, ooh, I love coming-of-age stories. <laughs> so I want to watch this one, and I want to watch it first because it's her first movie. And I thought it was mm-hmm. a great place to start um, because that movie really amazed me. Because what you were saying, we might get a film about coming-of-age through teenage girls, but we might get them through the lens of a straight, white, male filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And watching this from a woman filmmaker who is a lesbian, it was a very fascinating look at how she looked at the internalization of this uh, main character, uh, Marie, and who barely says anything in the entire movie. It's all about... Yeah, but when she does, she is sometimes so brutally honest and direct yeah, she she's a, comes across as a little bit of a wallflower, but then when she says things, it's like, oh, wow, she is not a pushover. Yeah, and I think she kind of has this growth in the movie where at first she sort of has this crush and is starstruck and then starts to see the reality of what her relationship with this other girl is. Yeah. And that she's kind of just a tool for her. Yeah, and she's been kind of doing a similar thing to her friend, An. Yes. Mm -hmm. Who's also had that something like that happening to her by that boy. Yeah. Exactly. I started watching this and I thought, oh, no, Jim has gotten me into another coming of age movie. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Because I know Jim loves coming of age movies. And so I thought maybe maybe this is just. And so I I went into it with I didn't read the description on Criterion. I went into it with this impression of, oh, it's just, you know, this Jim fell for this because it's another coming of age movie. And it's going to sort of fulfill all the it's going to be this sort of sweet French version of the typical coming of age. And and a half an hour into it, I was like, oh, I was wrong. That is not what this movie is. This is like one of the most emotionally complex movies I've ever seen. There is so much going on internally with these characters and externally, but the way that they're emotional lives is communicated through glances and body language is just incredible. There's, there's so much complexity to the emotion that it's almost like it, it has the emotional complexity that a uh, murder mystery has in plot complexity. Did you like water lilies, Carrie? I did. Yeah, I definitely did. And I mean, I thought it was also really beautiful to look at as someone who studied photography as opposed to film, I often see single frames like pictures. And there were a lot of them that I wanted to pause and look at in this. I was struck by both of the the two friends, Marie, is it Anna is the name of her? On. Coming to both sort of like reject being put in these positions of being less than and how they both sort of came back together 
as friends at the end. It's one thing to have a film that doesn't have a lot of words, but you're going to have to have, have actors that can convey that uh, emotion with their faces. Yes. But you have to be able to photograph them in a way that you really concentrate. And this is what I think uh, she does like almost in all her movies. And it's a pretty amazing is there's something, and I guess it's like, the, I guess the gaze, right? The female gaze or the male gaze. But she has a way of being able to get her camera focused on these characters and you can see beyond the eyes into what these characters might be thinking, which I think is very hard to do as a yeah. filmmaker, but I feel like I can inside those characters' brains. And that's what I first got out of this movie, Water Lilies, that I was just really fixated. Like I bought all of the intense relationships going on. Mm-hmm. And this other character, uh, Heloise, played by Adele Hanel. Uh, who was a, like 17 or 18 at the time. And she is sort of the yeah. object of Mary's affection. And she's a very complex character, not very, not one dimensional because in the one hand, she may be leading Marianne along, but then I think there's more to it. She's not yes. sure about her own sexuality. She's exploring. I mean, I don't want to really give away this movie to people, but I just, on so many levels, I was really floored by what was happening in the movie. Yeah. I had this thought when I was watching it that uh, that the casting was incredible. Then I, I started to realize it was, but also the way she's working with actors brings out these really subtle things. And like you said, the way she's focusing on their faces is she's giving them time i feel like there's space around the performance it's not just get the quick look as the reaction shot there's i don't know there's space given to it yeah i totally agree with that and it it gives us time as the audience to process and think more deeply about what's happening there was also one thing that i noticed throughout this film and i liked it because i feel that a lot of times in the teenage world, if I look at an American version of the coming of age story, there's always right. the parent there or some uh, sort of adult figure to guide the teenager along their journey through like intelligent speeches or something. This movie has no adults. I loved that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that with the exception of maybe the, the swim coach at one point and right. another little brief interaction, it was just about the teenagers and it's the in-between scenes without the parents. Yes. Yeah. And I think that a lot of, I mean, sort of like looking back, remembering being that age, I kind of felt like I was on my own in a lot of ways and that you know, my parents didn't really understand and I wouldn't have even occurred to me to go to them with some of the issues that like the girls in this movie are dealing with. They know that there's nothing there (laughs) in a way. There can be this like disconnect of remembering what that experience was like being a preteen slash teen and being kind of lost. And her middle two movies, uh, adults figure in a little bit more, but it's Mm -hmm. still very much about what happens when the adults aren't around, which, uh, Carrie, you've seen now, you saw all four movies, right? Yes, I did. And I saw all four movies. Teal, how many did you make it through? Two. Okay, so did you see the, this one and then did you watch Portrait, Portrait of, Lady? of a Lady on Fire? Yeah. Which I think okay. were the best two to watch for this discussion, just because I felt in a weird way they're bookend, but there's a lot of similarities in the two films, but it's just interesting to see the director's evolution because I feel, this is just me personally. Yeah. I watched this portrait of a lady on fire and I don't know what my resistance to it was when it was making its rounds in the theater. I didn't, it wasn't anywhere near where I was, but I just, it wasn't on my radar screen, but I 
I don't want to say the word emotionally shattered, but this to me was one of the great love stories that I've ever seen. Yeah. That's just my, that's my take on it. And it has nothing to do with like the female director or that. It's just, as just a story about a love story. It's to me, one of my favorite love stories that I've seen in many, many years. We're talking about her a lot as a director and I want to give her kudos as a writer too. And we've talked about this before, but with writer directors where she knows what she's going to be able to get out of it cinematically. And so she doesn't need to use dialogue the way a screenwriter might. She can write the scene knowing that she's going to layer in so much visually and so much in the performances that the dialogue doesn't have to telegraph everything. And particularly a movie about, like the Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that is about how people look at each other. I mean, this the first hour of this movie is one woman examining another woman's face, basically. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but, but it's a movie that in, in large part is about how we see things and how we see each other. And there's a lot of that, those looks going on that I think it's credit to her as a writer that she knows when to pull back on the on the words and let the pictures do the talking. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know you're a writer and hearing that perspective makes a lot of sense in it. Yeah, having that kind of control seems all the more important when you say Exactly. That. Yeah, and it, it and one other thought while I'm <laughs> while I'm talking is you mentioned how these her shots work as photographs and they're generally really sort of straightforward shots but they're so well composed. Mhm. That, that, yeah, you could pretty much pause at any moment and frame the picture, but they're not like hitting you over the head with their sort of graphic, I don't know, like the way they're set up. It's not like, oh, wow, what an amazing shot. Although I I'd certainly had that reaction at times, but they're, they can be fairly subtle, but so well composed. And it reminded me, I don't know why, for some reason during Water Lilies, I got this impression very early on and it was hard to let go of that there was something similar to Michael Powell, the Powell and Pressburger film, in, just in the framing. And so, I, yeah, I just, that occurred to me. Well, that was interesting because, well, we, we talked about aspect ratios. Out of the four movies that she's directed, three of the four are all 185 to 1. And from yeah. what I heard in the interview with her, it's her favorite uh, aspect ratio because, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers, especially American filmmakers today, they seem to forget about composition. And, yes. you know, really, when you really want to focus on intimacy and, and details, that framing is much better than the 235 uh, yeah. cinemascope, as she called it. And the only one that she did that for which I didn't feel composition-wise was this success, was a girlhood. And the reason why she shot in widescreen for that is that she had so many characters that she was trying to put mm. in the frame and the way that she wanted to frame and compose them, she felt that 235 worked better. Right. The compositions in Portrait of a Lady on Fire are, are mesmerizing. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why she decided not to shoot film on that and actually shoot the sort of high-res uh, digital is because she wanted it to not feel classic film. Right. And right. have a little bit more of a contemporary feel. But the vibrancy of the colors, I mean, it was shot with this very, very expensive digital camera. In order to do the things that she's doing in this film and not be boring, a lot of times filmmakers will throw wall-to-wall uh, -wall music. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no music in this movie whatsoever, no. except unless characters are playing the music or singing. Uh -huh. And those those moments 
are so amazingly successful because there yeah. is no score on the movie. Well, and the lack of music is also important to the character. It's, it's a character thing. Yes. Right. So it's it's not just a cinematic conceit. It's actually organic to the characters. And you had said something about the script. And even though there's not a ton of dialogue, it is a very intricate script where yes. everything that's laid out in the story pays off in ways that I, I usually I can guess all oh, this is going to happen that these things caught me by surprise and it just shows you how emotionally I was caught up and I'm thinking yeah. of things like when you see the portrait hanging up in the gallery show at the end and that little detail that we were given by information yeah. and scene it, it like I you know I don't want to say I was tearing up but it like what it helped convey is how important the relationship was. Right. In uh, the portrait of a lady on fire, the, the painter is Marianne, and it's played by uh, Naomi uh, Marion. And the subject, Heloise, is played by Adele Hanel, who was also the object of affection in Water Lilies. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. But now she's 30 years old. So what's interesting is that she's a famous actress in France, but I didn't know her over the years. Right. So I'm seeing her jump suddenly 13 years and you see sort of her own wisdom and adult. And this story, which throws an interesting switch, you're focused on the character of the painter Marianne. And she's falling for this subject. And you think that she's maybe almost trying to seduce her. But of course, because of the times, it's set in 1770. You know, there, there's not going to be any relationship. Right. However, what you really realize once things start to come together, it's kind of Heloise who's seducing her. Yes. There's a mutual seduction and then there's a mutual attraction. And it's only when the characters feel comfortable in revealing themselves a bit more, you find out and learn just how each one had a crush on the other one and what point that did they have that. Yes. These are things that you just don't usually get in a movie that we see in America today. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also there's the female perspective here, which is very different than the male impression of a love story. And you you were saying this is one of the great love stories. Yeah, I th I think that's right. And it but it is very different than sort of the American male love story. Yes. And I noticed that men are almost completely absent from this movie. I liked that too. Yes. Grown ups are absent from her other movies. In fact, there's just a very small role of a man that shows up late yeah. very briefly. And I gasped <laughs> well, and, and only because... when he showed up and I was like, oh, I forgot about man. Right. There's, but it's there's only, one. And, and he's only there because it's absolutely necessary and realistic. Right. And it's like they need him to do a task. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of discussion in the movie about the role that women have to play in this man's society, but yet we get to have an experience when women are allowed to be women without these men telling them what to do. That's very well put. Yeah. And that, but that it is really a patriarchal world and that's what they're subject to in their exterior lives, but they have these interior lives that are much more nuanced and complex. And, and uh, ultimately, you know, there's this impending marriage. Yes. That's 
looming and unwanted and inevitable. And there's a clock that's ticking away at these moments. And I think that also, this is what adds to this passionate love story for me is I, f- I feel like if people are lucky enough to have a passionate romance in life, there's always been that moment where you know the clock was ticking and that this is a special moment that isn't right. going to last. And you know when that is almost to an end, it's like their last night together and they're trying to keep each other awake as long as possible because when they go to sleep and wake up, it's going to change. Yeah. And these are just powerful moments. And there's a thing that happens. It's a device in the middle of the film. And it's a story that I think is tricky because you don't realize how important the story that's being told is going to play into the rest of the movie. And that's when they are reading uh, from Ovid's Orpheus and Eurydice. And the story, which again, I I don't want to spoil all the great things for people who will discover (laughs) this, but the story plays into the end of their story and 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 the opinions of choosing to memorize somebody's face also ties into not only their story, but the idea of what you have to take back as an artist when you are painting from memory. Exactly. That becomes very powerful. And also these moments, sometimes there are flash forwards and you don't quite understand them. They're haunting and creepy in a way. And I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the white dress and the appearances. When I first saw the vision that she sees, I was startled. Yeah. It was like a ghost. I'm like, this person should do a ghost story because she scared me already more than, (laughs) because it was just so haunting. I love haunting things more than scary things. And so when this final moment comes, also it took my breath away because the script, which is so well done, ties all these things together. And then by that ending scene, when the Vivaldi actually gets tied in from several things in the movie, I was holding myself back from tears because I just, it's so emotional. You don't need to hold back, Jim. You can just let Let go. I know. I'm silly. Well, a movie has to get to me. And this movie got to me. Again, what I look for is is a love story. It it can be a love story between anybody. Uh, I don't care about the gender or the race. I care, does the love story work? Is it real? Do you really buy the Do you fall for it? And I I wasn't even having to be fallen for it. I feel that it was really achieved in a way that I just don't see many movies. So again, I was just so floored and I'm glad that, A, Carrie, you got to watch it and that you, Teal, got to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, once once this movie is off Hulu... <laughs> off a lockdown. Uh, once it's out of, out of, out of the Hulu jail, uh, I recommend. I highly recommend people watch this movie. Well, I mean, you say Hulu jail, but Carrie, you obviously have Hulu. I have Hulu, yeah, but I mean, not everybody. I know has Hulu, so that's fair. Did anybody else get the piano vibes from the beach landing at the beginning? Yes. Well, and now the that precious, you mentioned the precious art. You know, yeah. in the water and I love the setup of that. I thought I was like, "Hey, this just has a feel uh, like the piano," but yet I feel maybe that was a homage to say, "I'm going to do a different type of story." It was just like a little to me. It was like a little wink, maybe. It felt very much like the opening of the piano. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it hadn't occurred to me, but now that you mention it, yes. I also have to say, like when they when all the everybody was gathering around the bonfire. I love that scene. I I mean, it was a great scene, but I was like historically. What? What is this a kegger? What? 
<laughs> uh, well, I was, I was just thing? thinking, where, where did all these people come from? Because they seem so isolated. That happened, and I think later they were like, you know, when they were remembering the moment that I yeah. felt something for you. One of them said, like at the festival or at the feast or something, yeah. they named it as being, but it was very vague. Not, I'm, it's not a criticism, but I just was like, oh, this is a cultural thing that I'm not aware of from this time frame <laughs> that people did. But again, that was, I mean, again, it wasn't explained. Right. But when that sound, because we were so used to the silence of no music. So right. when that comes up and swells, it, it was very intense. Oh, when they start mm-hmm. singing? Yeah. Yeah, that was really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And also that, you know, you're very aware because of the fact that there was no score, the crackling of the fire that obviously for heat and light mm-hmm. those fires were constant inside the manor and you really got a great sense of space in this movie for where they were inside yeah. that you know manor I, I just again i could go on for this for a very long time and, uh, just, <laughs> oh yeah there are all sorts of shots with fire and women in the foreground with the fire place yes. flames behind them lots of lots of that happening visually I even like the whole sort of uh, setup where she's teaching art to the students and the student drags this one painting and you get just the fleetest glimpse yeah, of the of main that painting. And it's great because it it does this whole thing, the idea of this memory. It puts something in your memory as the audience to have to think yes. about, well, are we going to see that painting again? Or what's that image going to be? How does that story unfold? So I love that device as well. Uh, there's something else that I read after the fact that... Someone pointed out that an American audience might not pick up the way a French audience would. Mm-hmm. And I thought this, again, it's all about the script. But throughout the movie, and it's funny, as I knew this, but I just thought, well, maybe back in, you know, 1770, this is how they would say it. When you address somebody as you, right? if you're in a formal friendship, like you might say to your husband or wife, you might say to, to you. Right. If it's impersonal and you're meeting this person and it's a very professional relationship, you say vous, V-O-U-S. Right. Throughout the movie, they use that vous to each other. However, in the end, with the final words, she says, retourne toi, which is turn around, but she uses the very intimate because they are now connected in a way that they weren't during the journey. And so these are subtle things, but there's just so much going on. And like I said, this isn't just, oh, I love this movie. I love this movie from this filmmaker. And now I'm like, when can I see another movie (laughs) from her? Because even though the middle two movies, Tomboy and Girlhood, I didn't care for as much as uh, these other two. I still like Tomboy a lot, and it's a very short movie. And Girlhood, I, I appreciate it, but I just I I didn't like as much. And I'm kind of curious as what your thoughts were on that, Carrie. Yeah, I, I agree. I was more engrossed with Tomboy. I mean, I recommend both of them, I guess, but maybe Tomboy a little bit more than Girlhood. For me, Girlhood, I was thinking a lot about race because it's a white director making a film with a completely black cast you know the scenes when the girls are kind of having like they're dancing they're sort of not not when they're in the hotel room but when they're having kind of almost a dance off or there's a big group of them congregated outside and there were shots that were like close-ups of just the middle section of sort of like young black girls bodies and just just their hips moving do you think that's more of how shiama is just fascinated with female bodies in a way that Maybe she feels comfortable, whereas if it's a male shooting the same film, it might feel more, you know, 
exploitative? I think there's a layer of there's a layer of race on top of it yeah. that has to be understood, especially the way black bodies are viewed and over-sexualized, um, sexualized at a younger age by, you know, the white gaze specifically, yeah. that it wasn't a comfortable scene for me. Yeah, I didn't like it. And yeah, it didn't seem right. That's interesting. Yeah. It, the movie did leave me with the question that she is a white filmmaker. And what was it? Why? Why was this story? What was the reason that she told this story? Because I guess right. she doesn't always know where her next story is going to come from. And she gets inspired by something. And here the, the story on it was she got fascinated that she started noticing groups of these teenage girls that, that she ends up uh, writing a story about. She noticed them around the outskirts of Paris when she was there, and she noticed that they had a very specific look. They were wearing certain clothes and their hairstyles, and it seemed to be like, you know, something that she wasn't aware of when she was growing up, that there's definitely like a style going on. So she started to kind of interview these girls, and she was uh, on their blogs, and she learned there was a whole culture and kind of an aesthetic to this that she wasn't aware of. So she started to, you know, explore that story. Um, that's how it came about. Again, I think that your concerns are valid. What you've just described is kind of the history of white culture appropriating black. <laughs> right. They're like, hey, we're fascinating. Something that seems really cool. Can- yeah, that's exactly. exactly. So yeah, now and let's then make a movie. With like this anthropological gaze, exactly. basically. Yes, exactly. That too. Um, there's like an otherness and there's like a fascination, but it's very yeah. kind of othered and it comes from a more privileged position. There's a lot in there. I mean, obviously, I think she's a great filmmaker and I love her other movies, but this one, I think, had some blindness yeah. to her own white perspective seems to me that she was not aware of and might have thought she was creating an honest and you know truly interested perspective but to me it was not that you know you had said this statistic at the beginning where we have a a dearth of women filmmakers making these movies but we take that another step further and the list of women black filmmakers is very, very small. Tiny, yeah. Yeah. She probably thought, well, if I'm not making this story, nobody else is. But the flip side of that is that she could have shepherded a black filmmaker to make that story. Or promote black filmmakers that are already making those stories or whatever it is to use, use her own access and her own privilege to get those stories told, I think is the way to do that kind of thing. You brought to light another filmmaker to me. Uh, was it Kathleen Collins? Mm-hmm. Film circles start to know her because she made a groundbreaking film in the early 80s, and she was a black female in America, a filmmaker, and she died tragically of cancer in her 40s before she ever made another big feature. What was the what was the feature you're talking about? It's called Losing Ground. It's on Criterion right now. Did you watch the whole thing? I did watch the whole thing, and I I highly recommend it. 
So I've watched the first 10 minutes and it's and not because like I couldn't get through anymore. It's just, I, that's all the time I had. Sure. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's like a 16 millimeter movie. And I'd say that at least in the first 10 minutes that I saw it, it, it featured some really amateurish acting and yeah, the acting is definitely not the best. And the music was that kind of, Hey, I got somebody that could do the music for me. And so <laughs> it feels when we talk about low budget, there's varying degrees of low budget. This is about as low budget as you can get. But so I don't really know enough because usually I like to give a movie 20 minutes, right, to see what's happening. But mm-hmm. what what is it about this film that you found interesting that you really liked it? Well, I guess I would say, first of all, like in thinking about, you know, consciously watching uh, movies by women and then women of color or people of color or whatever the sort of like marginalized group in filmmaking is, I kind of will suspend some of these markers that I might look for in filmmakers that have full access to everything that whiteness right. and maleness has afforded them. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not that it's better or it's the same quality. It's just having this perspective and understanding of people not having access to right. all the things that you might say are essential for a great film you know i agree with you about the acting although i found it watchable but not unwatchably bad acting but i think you know it's the first feature-length drama directed by a black american woman and i think just seeing characters from this time that are you know she's a philosophy professor the main character her husband is a painter and you know, they very much have this life of the mind and of art. And those aren't the kinds of characters <laughs> that you saw Black Americans playing in film at the time. And there's like a film within a film. They, they, they discuss all sorts of things about philosophy, obviously, creativity, relationships. There's a whole Apollonian versus Dionysian conversation about living life the colors in it are gorgeous and there are these shots that are you know framed really beautifully there's a dance sequence that totally seems like um she's got to have it with making a nod back towards <laughs> when it came out <laughs> oh that's fascinating it's not like i know so much about the history of film but it felt like something novel and good and imperfect i our regular standards, perhaps. I don't know. It seems like it really matters. And I really enjoyed looking at it and having the experience of seeing a movie like this, which was not something I had seen before. Well, I'm going to finish it. I just, I had wished I was like, I was like, I was like hoping I could get to it. Um, you mm-hmm. talked me into it. I totally want okay. to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's foundational. I mean, not, I don't know this, but I'm going to guess it's foundational for uh, it, it, it kind of has to be. It kind of, it, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. uh, well, so I, I did a little research on it. It didn't get any kind of theatrical release. It played right. at festivals, but it was, again, it was something that over the years, right, it developed a reputation and then it just fell out of existence. You couldn't see it. And then she passed away. And, you know, I think her, her existing family. Uh, found the negative because people kept on asking about it. And then it was, you know, luckily uh, a company restored it to the state that it's in now. Um, so it's one of those things where it could have literally been, literally been a lost movie. Yeah. Um, so I think this is another thing why we keep touting Criterion Channel 
is, you know, you just want to, you know, Amazon Prime, Netflix, all these streaming services are great. You get all these films and they will throw on these odd gems that we find. But Criterion Channel allowed me to go in and see every film that Celine Siama did after Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Like, it was just great to be able to then concentrate on one filmmaker. And even though, Carrie, you pointed out that, you know, hey, there's a lot more uh, you know, women filmmakers than just what Criterion has. This is true, but it's really one of the few places that stream that you can actually have a concentrated library of uh, female directors and writers and their movies, and they will continually rotate and update and do specials, which is something that other services do not. Yeah, it's it's really great. I can't recommend the Criterion channel enough. And, you know, that sort of, I had never seen Daughters of the Dust. That's also on there, right? It's on there right now. And so I watched that as well. Uh, right, written, directed, and produced by Julie Dash. Oh, okay. First feature film directed by a Black American woman distributed theatrically in the U.S. Was it good? I liked it a lot. So it's looking at the Gullah culture on a sea island off of South Carolina. I don't know if you know hmm. about this Gullah Geechee culture. No. It's a real thing where there were slaves that I don't know enough about the history, but they basically created their own little society, society separate from the mainland and were deeply tied to uh, the Yoruba tribe and maintained a lot of their African culture and traditions. There's their own language that's, you know, a mixture of English um, and African languages. Like a patois. Mm-hmm. And so it's set in 1902, and it's a moment when some of them had left and gone to the mainland and have come back. One of them's found Christianity, but they're sort of gathering people up to go with them and basically assimilate hmm. into oh, wow. the rest of the country. And there's this choice of who wants to go and who wants to stay and what you're gaining and what you're losing by assimilating. This sounds like I got to see this now. <laughs> Yeah, I got to see. Yeah, I'm, I sort of, I don't know why I assumed that you both would have seen it because I felt bad that I hadn't seen it, but I've been aware of it as like a major important movie for a while. And I found it really beautifully shot again in sort of like looking at it in terms of photographic frames. Well, I think that's another thing is these movies, I hear about them, but that the, until the criteria, they're not readily available. Right. And I certainly don't live in a place like I, I used to live in Massachusetts, and these things would show at retro theaters in Cambridge. Uh, but right. But they yeah. do n- not in Vermont, <laughs> not where I live now. So, yeah, Daughters of the Dust is on Criterion right now, too, and I okay. highly recommend I that. I will check that out. Too. Can you, can you list off some directors and some movies for us? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So, well, the sort of like quiet movie, These this isn't quite so quiet as paint drying, but um, Kelly Reichard. Yes. Who, uh, Wendy and Lucy, Meeks cut off, certain women. She's got a very slow pace. Yeah. And, I loved know, Meeks I, cut off. Mm-hmm. So she's someone that I often enjoy. Okay. Andrea Arnold. Red Road is probably my favorite. There's Fishbowl. She did a version of Wuthering Heights that I liked a lot. And okay. American Honey. She's a British filmmaker. It's very women-focused stories. She often uses non-actors. I think it actually works out a lot of the time. So there's that authenticity, right. uh, looseness kind of thing that can go in opposition to being maybe, quote-unquote, a good actor. Right. Um, but I, especially Red Road, which involves 
um, a CCTV camera sort of monitor in Scotland, seeing someone from the past and then having a revenge. Have you seen it? No, no, no. But I I remember reading about it. Uh, Yeah, I've read about it. And it's okay, coming well, back to me. Now. Yeah. I don't know. I love that one. I like all our movies, but especially Red Road. And it, it's on Criterion right now. And I think a couple other ones are too. I like Sarah Polly a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stories we, stories we tell and take this waltz as a like non-romantic relationship story. <laughs> kind of depressing relationship story. Take this waltz and away from her. Yeah. Yeah. I wish you'd make more movies. Yeah. She's really great. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked Away From Her. Deborah Granick, uh, Winter's Bone, yes. and Leave No Trace. Yeah, Leave No Trace. Teal, did you haven't caught up with that yet? I don't think, no, no, no. I, I really, really want to because it's that. right up my alley. It also ties in with that theme that you were just talking about the other day. Yes. Um, you know, kind of kids in peril and how they deal with situations that maybe stress adults out. <laughs> yes, exactly. And when the kid is maybe going to be the grown-up yeah both of those movies it's like child having to be the adult i also love ben foster Uh, mm -hmm. (laughs) he's he's an odd duck that's what i like about him let me ask you a question carrie that may may be sort of a weird question but i'm going to give it a shot anyway uh we talked a little bit about sort of the white male gaze and and sort of the patriarchal approach to storytelling and filmmaking and we can sort of find some common threads in there between these these things and sort of uh, start to come up with sort of a definition of what what that sort of classical narrative looks like. Are there common threads between these women filmmakers that you see? It, it seems like what a lot of what you're talking about are sort of stories about underrepresented people uh, or even just about underrepresented parts of their lives. Are, are there threads that you see here? I mean, I think that there are things about sort of stuckness and power that you feel inside yourself individually that isn't reflected in the world or isn't recognized in the world. Right. Obviously, things about sexuality and boxes. And when I think in Water Lilies, the synchronized swimmer who's the object of yes. the desire. Heloise. You know, she has to deal with this idea of a reputation that she has to deal with the virgin whore thing. And she's kind of managing it by lying to everyone and maybe lying to herself about how she feels. I think that, yeah, that it's like, it's, it's about power. There's this, this sort of camping down of your own power and whether right. it can be released and recognized where is it safe for it to be free and it's in like quiet stolen moments a lot of the time and i think you know when we're looking at historical dramas or things that are you know very young girls just figuring things out it's more dramatic but there are ways that that's true for women you know in the workplace and in their own relationships that resonate even if it's not quite as dramatic one uh, American female film director that I always feel, whether you like her stuff or you don't, or maybe only like a couple, and I don't know if her, all her films are s- super successful or not, but she definitely has a unique perspective that I think th- runs throughout all her films, and that's Sofia Coppola's movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about her first film, Virgin Suicides, and that was a book that I loved, but it was a, you know, it's a male gaze book. Yeah. And... 
yet it appealed to both men and women. However, when I saw the film initially, I didn't like it because I felt like, oh, Sophia didn't get the what the book was about because I was a male and I was looking at it from right. a male perspective. But <laughs> over time, what I've gone to appreciate is that she reinvents the book and she brings a female perspective to what she felt was missing from the story. And you look at it a completely different way through her eyes as a director and her approach. It's completely different than what I ever thought the book was. And it took me a while and many times watching it as I struggled with this idea that a work can be reinterpreted and that it took a woman to direct this movie to bring something out of it that a typical male director um, would have done it completely different. That's a great example. Do you think she was less successful at that, at that in her last film? Uh, what's it called? The Beguiled. Beguiled, yeah. Here's, did you see The Beguiled? No. I didn't see it. Okay, so here was my problem with The Beguiled. A, it was beautiful. Beautiful to look at. It's almost a shot-by-shot remake of the original film, though it brings in a few more details that the book had. I didn't read the book. Um, However, it came out at a time where some of the plot conventions in it share a very common bond with a movie that also came out that year that I really, really liked. And I found it very hard to separate the two. Oh, okay. And again, I don't really like Colin Farrell that much. And so to have him in the movie kind of, you know, I liked all the (laughs) female performances in the movie, but I didn't really like him because I'm just not a big Colin Farrell fan. Uh, So I don't know if it was that, but it was always interesting. And again, I think she still brings in something that the original director, Don Siegel, he was about as, uh, you know, kind of right wing macho as you can get with Clint Eastwood. And I think that she, um, she tried to take some of that away. Um, and give a different approach to it. Uh, but I still don't know if it was, I felt like it was an exercise more than it was really a okay. good movie watching, but it was really uh, interesting to look at. I actually did see it. I just Googled it and this is how, this is my memory. Yes, I saw I saw it. Oh, good, see? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it didn't make a huge impression on me. <laughs> you know, my favorite of her films is Lost in Translation. I also really like The Virgin Suicides and I really like Nowhere. Yeah, I know. Nowhere kind of stands out for me. Yeah, I have not seen it. I got to check it out. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Her approach, just her ideas on things are different in the way she approaches a movie than a male does. And totally. again, it just is why we need more female voices in cinema. Not to suggest I don't like movies that are focused on men. Do you have more on your list there, Carrie? This is great because I'm getting all these hidden gems out of this show. And <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm like building a list of stuff to watch. I didn't like adore it. But Jill Soloway's Afternoon Delight had some interesting, which I know that you had a past guest on. There was a thing that felt new to me in that movie, and it was the uh, perspective on the sex worker character. And this angle of these annoying kind of hipster white liberals, which I mean, I'm a white liberal. I try to keep. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think I could say that one way or another so i found afternoon delight really interesting in that way breaking little stereotypes about a sex worker and you know you wound up thinking more negative things about the people that were trying to quote unquote save her and like the ones who needed saving and so i sort of enjoyed it for that reason 
So I had Jane Campion on my list, even though I haven't seen all of her movies. I mean, Jane's one of the ones that people know the most, whether or not they've seen her. Right. But she's got the brand marquee name. I, yeah, you know, she I'm does. not even sure what <laughs> exactly I think about because I it's been so many years since I've seen her movies. Like I remember, I really liked the piano when I saw it when it came out. I don't yeah. know now what i would think i enjoyed top of the lake on tv never saw it i really liked and i know this is probably an unpopular opinion but i really liked her portrait of a lady with Mm -hmm. nicole kidman i never saw that i might have seen it i can't be certain (laughs) okay well (laughs) i i I will recommend it then but yeah it it was controversial at the time It's, it's kind of a cold clinical movie and that's sort of what i liked about it but it turned a lot of people off I mean, I think of even like Olivia Wilde's book smart, which we did. I, well, I saw it. You don't, until you didn't see it yet. I didn't see it yet. It's sort of like the classic teenage end of the school year, graduating senior. There's going to be a big party. I have a crush on this guy kind of movie. It, it's a formula we know. Right. It's one of those like enjoyable movies, but it has all these little twists that aren't the usual thing from those mm. from those movies that I feel like, you know, a more of a woman's perspective right. or a, you know, one woman's perspective were interesting to me. Another female comedy um, on that vein, uh, Kay Cannon, which uh, people, it doesn't have as much of a marquee name as Olivia Wilde, but she directed Blockers, which I thought was really funny. Well, there's definitely, we haven't really touched on sort of more traditional Hollywood Women right. directors like Catherine Bigelow, say, or Penny Marshall. Or Jodie Foster. Or Jodie Foster, yeah. Who are sort I of think, more in yeah. the traditional Hollywood narrative mold. For me, it's just that I generally am not drawn to those movies by men or women. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I saw more of them when I was younger. Right. Now, but now I'm, I just like, yeah, I'm not as, I'm not as interested in them. Little trivia. Her first feature directorial uh, debut, Little Man Tate, Carrie and I saw in the theater together. We did? We did. I don't remember that. I had thought that you and I have seen one movie together in the theater. Well, it was that movie. And we also saw a movie called, a Woody Allen movie called Alice. That's the one I remember seeing with you. Yeah, there may have been another couple kicking around, but those two for sure. We used to see movies on video together. I don't remember any of that. Anyways, look, we could be, we, we, well, we've been, this is one of our longest programs ever. I don't know what will happen when we edit, but, uh, you know. Let it run the whole thing. Yeah, I'm going to go out and get a, fix some lunch and I'll come back and we'll just keep talking. But we could talk forever. And that's the problem with our show is that we get excited and we want to just keep on going, but it's a show. So we're going to end sadly, but I hope, <laughs> I hope Hulu, whatever you got to do, you got to see this portrait of a lady on fire because I'm Wait, re- let, let, let me just say though, <laughs> I signed up for Hulu just and. And you can get a free trial. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did because I had to spend money for that Triangle movie a year ago. So that's the payback. We're, now we're even. <laughs> yeah, and you can watch Booksmart is also on Hulu. So you should check that out. Exactly. So I signed up for Hulu just to see this movie. And, and I recommend doing that. It's great. Um, <laughs> get, it, the, it, it, get the free month and watch uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Debt of gratitude to you, Carrie, because I guarantee you, I would eventually maybe have seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but this got me to watch it. And this is why I like doing this show because it kind of says, all right, you know what? My mission is to be watching a very specific set of film or films in the next week. And then I do. And sometimes I'm really rewarded. And this week was a big payoff for me. Yay. 
Um, I uh, by the way, because this is how it all started, was <laughs> I was supposed to watch Orlando, and I did finish Orlando. Oh, and it wasn't. I think that it was probably more radical in 1992 than it is now, which I think is a testament to kind of subject matter. I just you know until De Swinton was like this unknown quantity back in '92, and people were yeah. like, "Who is this intriguing character?" And now we know Tilda Swinton, and we know that she's a chameleon and can do everything. So it, it just didn't, you know, seeing it 28 years later didn't blow me away. I, I, liked, I liked it at the it. time. Yeah, yeah, I still like it. I haven't seen it since the '90s, but I really liked it at the time. Yeah, me too. And I think, you know, I don't like it as much as I did now. Like, I see a lot of things that are like, oh, that's dated or that's not quite as shocking. And right. why is Jimmy Somerville dressed like an angel and descending? I love that part, right though. Now? That was my favorite part. I didn't know. It was so weird. Part. Well, it was so weird, right? But the whole- <laughs> it is weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but again, it's so, I think I find it so beautiful. And the shots are like so beautifully composed. And then the whole, oh, I woke up one day, she slash he lives forever and just yeah. like wakes up one day in the middle and is like, oh, now I'm a woman. Oh, it's a hundred years later, but guess what? We finally solved that lawsuit. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, like, it, it was, it was a little whimsical and, and fun, but I just, I wasn't pulled into watching it from beginning to end all in one sitting. Whereas as soon as I started watching the Celine Siama movies, I just was sucked right in. I just. Sure. Yeah. It's a very different sort of like level of emotional engagement between the two for me. But I think just like the beauty of looking at it and the sort of whimsicalness of it was enough for me to enjoy it, even though, yeah, I don't put it quite at the same level. Yeah, well, it's hard to put things quite at that level. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is very incredibly sophisticated filmmaking, I think. Agreed. Hey, this has been a special treat for me. Um, I love bringing people together after 30 years and uh, chatting up. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. And I love, obviously, I love movies, and but I don't really get to talk about them this much and in this much detail that often. And now, now you'll want to nap afterwards because it'll be exhausting. <laughs> be like, oh, my goodness. I, why are you so tired? Because I had to talk about movies for two hours. <laughs> and it's really good to talk to you, Teal. It's great to hear you after 30 years. I know. So thanks again. That's more time than some of our listeners have been alive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What do you know about your listeners? Well, we know, you know, they're in many different countries and they're many different ages. We we do surveillance on them. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So you get like how many listeners an episode average? Thousands. Two thousand. It varies. Two thousand. It varies. You know what? It could always be more. So tell your friends. Yeah, maybe a couple new new listeners will come in because they are dying to hear about women filmmakers. Yeah. But, uh, you know, again, Celine, Siama, there's a way you can actually watch all four of her movies if you just have those two services. <laughs> That's all you need. To, well, you know what? Look, at, for, to me, if you, people always say, oh, I love cinema. And then I, like, I'll, I'll see them on social media and I see what, they're like, what their sources are. And I'm like, oh, man, if you really like movies for like you know twelve dollars a month you could get an access to some of the greatest films of all time and then you could actually get an education <laughs> people don't want an education they want to be entertained well i find plenty of entertaining stuff i just you know just yesterday for the eight-year-old he loves greek mythology we watched on criterion this month we watched uh, jason and the argonauts so oh, yes cool. that's solid solid history there yeah <laughs> I, you know what I, I watched yesterday what oh my god it's so funny 
thank God it's Friday. Yes, that's on. They're doing a whole style segment on Criteria this month, so I might even check that out. <laughs> oh my God, it's so ridiculous and funny. And a little little baby Jeff Goldblum and Deborah Winger oh, are in it. All right, I'm, now I'm going to watch. But you should also then watch because it's <laughs> terrible, but it's again, it's part of their whole style theme is The Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, okay. oh yeah, I've seen again. that too. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a lady photographer. Of course, I'm going to watch it okay. again. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. This has been great. and uh, It has been. This is Carrie from Ithaca, is what I'm going to call you, and uh, Teal from wherever you are, and me from Vermont. <laughs> Jim. <laughs> all right. Uh, stuffweseen.com and uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com and Instagram at stuffweseen.com. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to stuffweseen.com. Yeah, you can get us. everything from there. You can find us from there. Yeah. And, and, you know, pass the word along. Get a couple of new uh, listeners in. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 And if I know you, you're dead.